even small spills in in you know biologically sensitive areas can be catastrophic and i, I wouldn't minimize the the spill in mauritius at all at all i know it's going to be a catastrophe for the people and you know potentially for the wildlife that is dr stephen murowski a marine biologist from the university of south florida's college of marine science today on animalia we discuss the oil spill off the coast of mauritius what it means and what impact these spills have On July 25th, a Japanese cargo ship ran aground into a coral reef off the coast of Mauritius, a small island country off of Africa's eastern coast. Mauritius is located just east of Madagascar. The ship was carrying 3,800 tons of crude oil and 200 tons of diesel. About 12 days after the grounding, the first of three oil containers broke open, releasing 1,000 tons of oil spilling into the ocean. And while from a purely volume standpoint, this spill is small compared to larger disasters, such as the Deepwater Horizon in 2010 or the Exxon Valdez of 1989, the specifics of the oil and sensitivity of the surrounding marine ecosystem make this very concerning. While officials in Japan, who are owners of the vessel, and France, which has a long history with the country as a former French colony, work alongside Mauritius and many international volunteers to try and limit the damage and conduct the cleanup, one has to wonder, why did this happen? Why do these incidents continue to happen? And what are the lasting effects on our oceans and marine life? Today, we get those answers and more from two guests, Dr. Stephen Murawski and Dr. David Hollander. Dr. Murawski is a population dynamics and marine ecosystem analysis professor at the University of South Florida College of Marine Science. He's a Peter Betzer Endowed Chair. He's a fisheries biologist and marine ecologist involved in understanding the impacts of human activities on the sustainability of our ocean ecosystems. His work on impacts of marine protected areas and other management options has formed the scientific basis for much of ocean regulation. Dr. Murawski currently serves as the director of the Center for Integrated Analysis and Modeling of Gulf Ecosystems, which is funded by a grant from the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative. Dr. Hollander is an associate professor of chemical oceanography, also at the University of South Florida College of Marine Science. Dr. Hollander's research program focuses on evaluating the influence that anthropogenic and natural climate and environmental change have on the biochemical cycling of carbon, nitrogen, and other biolimiting elements in modern and ancient lacustrine and marine settings. Dr. Hollander is the chief scientific director for the Sea Image Consortium funded by the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative to study long-term impacts of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil disaster. Most of you probably remember the Deepwater Horizon spill of 2010, the largest in human history. This was also known as the BP oil spill, named after the energy company, British Petroleum, responsible for it. In that spill, nearly 7,500,000 tons of oil spilled over 87 days stretching 68,000 square miles of ocean, dwarfing the 1,000 tons of oil spilling in Mauritius right now. Although Dr. Murawski warns, that doesn't mean we should take the Mauritius spill lightly. Even small spills 
in in you know biologically sensitive areas can be catastrophic and I, I wouldn't minimize the the spill in Mauritius at all at all I know it's going to be a catastrophe for the people and you know potentially for the wildlife there are two main types of marine oil spills deep water rigs and tankers or cargo ships historically tankers have been the most common you may remember hearing names like the Exxon Valdez or the Amoco Cadiz, both very large crude carriers who ran aground and dumped the millions of gallons into the ocean. Deepwater rig spills have not been as frequent, but pose bigger environmental issues when they do, as we learn with deepwater, a spill we are still paying for and cleaning up today, 10 years later. In the case of the Mauritius spill, it was a cargo ship, actually small by ocean oil carrier standards. The MV Wakashio, the name of the ship, was traveling through a highly trafficked area in the Indian Ocean that connects Asia with Africa and South America. In fact, in this area surrounding Mauritius, as many as 2,000 vessels travel through per month. However, in this case, the Wakashio was running a course 12 nautical miles north of the safe boundaries of the passageway. Thanks to work from global satellite analytics company, Windward, officials have been able to pinpoint the ship's path. So why is it that a cargo ship of this size was so far off course? That is being investigated as we speak. But as we hear Dr. Murawski put it, this should have never happened. This should never happen, right? I mean, we're in the day, we're in the modern days of marine navigation. That area is totally um, covered by, you know, you know, a constellation of GPS satellites, right? So something went wrong, you know, in the navigation of the ship because it had no business being anywhere near there. And as well, you know, marine, uh, commercial marine ships are obliged to have um, a system called AIS, which is a satellite-based tracking system, which you can find any commercial ship in the world, right? And, and somebody should have been monitoring the AISs, you know, of the ship's in and around the exclusive economic zone of Mauritius, you know, to say, hey, there's a vessel out there and it's a freighter and it's way off course and it's heading for the shore. And apparently that didn't occur. And so there, there is a question about just how much, um, how, how much the uh, capacity that the government in Mauritius has, you know, to uh, monitor what's going on in their, in their space, right, and, and, and be accountable. Um, the ultimate accountability, of course, is with the shipping company and letting a cargo ship like that get so far off course and come up on the shore is, is unconscionable, you know. And so obviously, you know, that, um, you know, there obviously will be, you know, um, you know, similar to deep water, there'll, there'll be um, fines and, and, and whatnot. Despite the size of the spill, there are reasons to be concerned. For one, the type of oil is very problematic. Dr. Hollander explains. The type of oil that actually spilled, which is the heavy fuel oil, is particularly onerous uh, from a cleanup point of view. And of course, relatively to toxicity, it, it, it contains an enormous amount of, of, uh, of toxic compounds. Some of the best known ones, of course, are the PAHs, but it's highly susceptible to UV radiation and consequently breaks down into these um, even more toxic soluble compounds that are in the class of compounds called benzenes. And there's uh, multiple ring structures. Naphthalene is in there, or I should say benzene. Um, 
toluene, uh, ethylbenzene, xylene. These are the kind of, of photooxidation products that happen from the release of, of, of this kind of highly or uh, the, the basically the fuel oil, the heavy fuel oil. The nature of the spill poses a serious threat to the mangrove forests that make this particular marine ecosystem surrounding Mauritius so valuable. Mangrove forests are found in coastal biodiversity zones. You've probably seen them before, but you didn't recognize the name. Their signature characteristic, visually, are their unique roots that twist and turn from the coastal floor up above the waterline, making the trees look as if they're standing on stilts. Mangrove trees look like acrobats in a way, dancing on top of the water surface, allowing them to stand the rise and fall of tides. Their signature characteristic scientifically, though, is the breadth of life and biodiversity they supply for. Well, it has a, it has a high degree of endemic um, uh, <clears throat> species, you know, species found there and, and, and you know, nowhere else. Uh, it's also close to where you get the convergence of currents, right? And so um, you, you get, you know, cold water, high productive areas, and then the, the uh, warm water, trop- semi-tropical areas. And so that tends to be an area of high biodiversity. And so it, it certainly is, um, you know, that and, and you know, um, it, it's basically just east of Madagascar, you know. So, so those are areas that are uh, really important in, in the whole biodiversity scheme of the Indian Ocean. And so it, it certainly is a very uh, unique area. More specifically, mangroves protect the shorelines from the heavy waves of the Indian Ocean, allowing for a wide range of plant and animal species to thrive behind this protective layer as Dr. Morowski describes. Well, in a certain sense, it is, it is, a, um, is, is an engineered habitat, you know, and so it, it, it's interesting because the mangroves and the, the leaves from the mangroves, et cetera, form the base of a coastal food chain, right? And so there's a whole series of plants and animals that, that forage off the mangroves. And then they also use the mangroves as protection for juveniles. So they become an area where, you know, um, small you know, in our case, small tarpon and snook and redfish and everything are up under the mangroves seeking protection from the predators, you know, and we know mangroves are quite susceptible to, you know, um, to oiling, et cetera. So the question is going to be, um, uh, you know, if you're, if you have it oil in places where the juveniles are concentrated, well, we know the juveniles are much more susceptible to, to, um, uh, both morbidity and mortality from oil than are the adults because the adults tend to be able to move, right? So it's kind of a double whammy in there. Uh, but, but definitely mangroves not only serve that purpose, but also they attenuate heavy weather. So for example, you know, um, that's an area where there's heavy wave action in the Southern Indian Ocean. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, the mangroves themselves will take the energy away from the waves instead and protect the shoreline. So, so they, they are first line of defense. And so if the mangroves are too heavily oiled, they'll die. And so that creates, you know, a, a yet a diff, additional challenge for the locals. Without mangroves, coastal erosion settles in, making this oil spill a potential lethal threat to this marine ecosystem. Yeah. The, the roots of the mangroves, the, the way mangroves grow, they, they, their limbs extend down and then basically they have long extensions that go into the sediment and they just become roots, right? And so those roots actually hold the sediment. So when you lose the mangroves, the sediment erodes. And this is, 
this is actually quite analogous to what happened in deep water with you know once the oil was in the salt marshes it made the it killed the roots of the uh, of the um, salt marsh plants and so then the 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 the, uh, the the salt marsh itself would cave in you know and so we i think that's probably a likely scenario in mauritius as well that you know we're going to see um, coastal erosion as a consequence of this as well and there is precedence on just how devastating an oil spill can be to such an ecosystem. On June 3, 1979, 138 million barrels of oil spilled into the Bay of Campeche when the Ixtoc oil well suffered a blowout. The Bay of Campeche lies in the Gulf of Mexico, nestled in between Mexico City and the Yucatan Peninsula. Nearly 40 years later, the mangrove forests lining Mexico's coast are still suffering. Back in uh, 2016, uh, approximately uh, 37 years now, 40 years after the Ixtoc oil spill, um, it was well regarded and there was a massive amount of oil that was on, uh, brought onto the shore and into the mangrove forest and all the way around the, the southern Gulf of Mexico, the Campeche up to Veracruz and actually even made its way up to Texas. Uh, but we decided in 2016 to go back and go to where we knew that there was oil back in 1979, 1980, and it had been tracked uh, by a, a number of researchers, um, uh, one of them which was with our, our, our team. Uh, and we went back there uh, and started to dig into these mangrove forests and uh, talking to the locals there. And what we were able to do is we were able to uh, dig uh, just a few centimeters below the surface. And you, we found a, essentially an oil layer that was a bit hard, but when you cracked it open, there was actually liquid oil still in there 40 years after the fact. And so these mangrove forests uh, in, with their quiet waters and their root systems uh, are, and their soil and, and or mud are able to bind that oil very, very effectively, and it'll stay in that environment. It is, I'd say, the nearest thing to impossible would be to try to clean out uh, an area underneath the roots of a mangrove a uh, single mangrove plant to get a mangrove forest. So depending upon the wave energy, which we now realize that uh, obviously how many days ago, I guess it was uh, uh, a few days ago that the tanker actually broke in half and the front part dislodged from the submerged part. And so this is going to be a situation where the wave energy then can start to push it into these mangrove forests and that's going to be a big risk. And so I think the take-home story from the Ixtoc was uh, one of the things we wanted to see is, is it still, is the signature of the, of the oil spill still present? And the unambiguous answer to that is yes, not only on the mangrove shorelines, but on beaches, we were able to see it, rocky shorelines in particular, we were able to see it. So, and this is a, 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 a quite a bit heavier type of oil than what was released during the Ixtoc spill. And consequently, my guess would be is that it, it will be in the environment for years, if not decades to come. Sure enough, as we learned from Dr. Morawski, the damage to these mangroves has had an exponentially negative impact on the marine ecosystem of Campeche. 
James, I'll also add this. Um, when we were down in the Bay of Campeche, uh, we had spoken to uh, lots of locals, and they emphasized the point when the oil came on shore into the mangrove forest, there was a it, there was a, quite a, a quick die off of all of those uh, fringing mangroves uh, that were on the front end of where the oil came in, um, and. That was a real. Uh, that's a real problem for exactly the reasons that Steve says, is that they are uh, an incredible. Uh, uh, it, it it they provide an incredible amount of security and protection uh, from any inland area and in a place like Mauritius, um, which obviously has a, a fairly uh, uh, it has quite a bit of low lying area behind these mangroves, um, it puts those at risk. So if the marine ecosystem of Mauritius is so valuable and so fragile, why didn't we move faster to stop the spill? After all, it was nearly two weeks between the Wakashio being grounded and when the oil started to spill. I asked this specific question to Dr. Moransky. Well, again, it, this is the issue of, of capacity to respond. You know, when we had deep water... Um, there were 7,000 vessels that responded to that. Uh, th th those kinds of resources simply don't exist in most of the developing world and certainly in this, this region. They're, they're, you know, even the government's capabilities to respond are, are quite limited. And so um, a lot of places people have very good intents. In fact, you know, you see a lot of the pictures of the, of the population out there, you know, wading up to their, their, their waists in, in oil, you know, trying to bucket brigade this out of there. Well, that's a very dangerous thing to do, first of all. But nevertheless, it basically says, look, they just don't have the capacity to do this, you know. And so, so um, you know, again, this was not an oil tanker. It wasn't like, you know, you punched a, a hole in it. It had to actually grind on the shore quite a while before you actually get the fuel tanks, you know, uh, opened up. And, and so, um, um, you know, what their, you know, their capacity to actually respond to something like this, because there probably hasn't been a lot of these incidents around the country in the first place, uh, they probably, you know, never thought about, you know, being prepared for something like this. And, you know, you know, you know, it's hard to anticipate how frequently it would occur and, you know, what, you know, having all the booming technology, which is, uh, is probably the most effective piece, you know, in a, in a place like this, you know, to, you know, you know, completely boom around this, this vessel, uh, and then eventually, um, you know, try to, um, collect the oil, you know, with skimmers. I mean, that's, that's what we do in the developed world, but, you know, was the boom available? Who knows? Um, are skimmers available? Probably not, you know, and so a lot of this had to be imported from France and other places as well. And so, so, you know, when you get to the, the far ends, the far reaches of the world, you know, the, the, the wherewithal to actually respond in an effective way to an oil spill simply isn't there. Smaller countries are, of course, more resource-strapped than larger ones. That should be obvious. And while the Mauritius economy has been relatively strong, its $11,000 and 238 GDP per capita is one of the strongest in Africa, propped up by its strength in tourism and fishing. In aggregate, its resources are still quite small. It's a tiny, independent nation sitting in the Indian Ocean, making it hard to monitor the volume of cargo traffic passing through each day. And, and whatnot. Um, I notice your, um, your questions, uh, to a certain extent, um, uh, 
wanted wants to know about you know um you know, how this might affect legislation in the future and you know one of the problems with developing world countries like mauritius is that they have very little c capacity in terms of um you know their marine uh domain awareness um their their laws and enforcement capability etc and so that that becomes a real problem when when developed countries like like japan you know who is responsible for this ship you know get involved in these kinds of things and so uh you know hopefully you know the country of mauritius and maybe maybe with uh with help from the international community can can increase their capacity to monitor you know their um their uh marine domain and try to head off accidents like this before they happen let's turn a page back to the deep water horizon spill we discussed earlier again the largest in human history this disaster still haunts us today what did we learn from it well for starters that we had not learned enough from spills prior. With deep water, this finally changed, as Dr. Murawski explains. He and his team have been on the forefront of analyzing deep water spill for the last 10 years. Yeah, I'll, I'll just follow up a little bit. You know, I, I do think that uh, we, not not Dave and I, but uh, um, we in the, you know, um, larger world had a great deal of hubris about the potential for an accident in, in you know, a mile deep. And, and we were we were totally unprepared um, for responding to a, a large volume spill of, you know, 60,000 barrels a day coming out of a 21 inch pipe. Um, there was no capacity to actually shut it off if the first line of defense, which was the blowout preventer, um, did, didn't blow out prevent, right? And so um, there was very little research about the behavior of oil and gas coming out of a hole like that and and what it would actually do. And so uh, in the past decade, we've trying to understand why, for example, um, instead of all the oil going, you know, like a rocket right up to the surface, why there is these large plumes of uh, small droplets that formed um, at 1200 meters um, that essentially were, um, uh, you know, stagnant in the water. Is, was that due to the natural processes involved in sort of like uh, uncorking a champagne bottle, you know, with the with the uh, large pressure drop and the bursting of gas bubbles coming out of solution in the oil? Um, and so we've, we've spent a lot of time and effort and money trying to understand that fundamental process, the sort of big bang of, of deep water, only because, you know, that's where the marine oil industry is going globally. Unfortunately, the Deepwater incident may be a sign of things to come, rather than a one-time horrific anomaly. Ocean rigs are getting deeper and deeper, and with that comes more risk. More pressure, more pipeline, more unknowns. As we exhaust the oil supply from reservoirs closer to the coast, the oil industry ventures deeper in pursuit of new black gold. You know, that's where the marine oil industry is going globally. Um, in the Gulf, I did some calculations just, just recently, and this year so far, 58% of the oil is now coming from a mile and deeper. And the deepest well is actually two miles deep. And so um, that's totally different than, you know, a generation ago where, you know, these things were shallow water wells that were just sitting on the bottom. These are now drill ships with uh, multiple wells, you know, all coming up to a, a common, you know, um, platform. The cost of these spills can honestly be hard to fathom. 
To date, British Petroleum has paid over $60 billion in damages for deep water. While that might seem like a jaw-dropping number that should scare every oil company in the world into operating with the strictest safety standards and protocols, guess again. For one, BP earned $13 billion in profit in 2018. So over 10 years, the deepwater costs are cutting into 40-50% to of their profits, which is steep, but far from a killer blow. Their stock still trades at a $72 billion market cap today. Furthermore, this number doesn't fully reflect the true damage caused, since many aspects are not reflected in modern economics. Well, I mean, Deepwater, Deepwater, uh, I mean, BP paid uh, and, you know, still paying uh, over $62 billion, right? Um, but it's hard to say that because, you know, some of these resources are, are ones that are hard to assign an economic value to. So, for example, you've got large populations of uh, bottlenose dolphins, which, you know, have a great non-market value to society. You know, people love them. And, you know, these are local populations. They're heavily damaged. They have a long life cycle of multiple decades. The populations are not reproducing. You know, they're carrying the legacy of deep water even a decade later. And so what's the value to society of those things? It's very hard to do. Um, We know what we know what Exxon paid, you know, they paid dearly for that accident. And in retrospect, I'm sure, you know, they would have loved to pay a little bit more ounce of protection, you know, for it. Um, but again, you know, these risks are the kinds of things that in the past oil and gas companies have been rewarded for, you know? And so, you know, do we really, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a massively underregulated um, uh, industry. Um, so, you know, we've been pushing for a decade to, to um, require the oil companies to at least get some baseline data on, you know, the resources before they go into an area so that we know if we have a spill, what we ought to restore the, you know, the spill to. And I would bet you that there is no baseline data in terms of contaminant levels and, and biological surveys and other things in these areas where the Mauritius spill is. And so, you know, and, I, you know, for sure, there's going to be a lot of researchers from France and Africa and other places that will go there to try to measure the effects of this spill. And the first thing they're going to say is, boy, I wish we had a baseline on what was there and how, how you know, what level of, um, of uh, oil-related compounds are in them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was one of the huge lessons from our um, point of view of deep water. And it's a lesson that we don't seem to be taking much account of. In fact, as Dr. Hollander adds, there is still so much we are learning today from the deep water spill in terms of its lasting damage and environmental impact. Yeah, I think uh, I was just saying over the last 10 years, our eyes have uh, are now open wide. There were so many unexpected consequences and unexpected uh, behavior of oil that we had no idea uh, could ever happen. Um, we understand now the role of pressure and 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 how gases interact with oil. Uh, we understand that uh, oil doesn't necessarily float, but there could be oil in the midwaters. Everybody believes that oil floats on top of water, but that's not the case. Uh, we recognize very quickly that uh, oil was actually coming to the surface and then going back down in association with sediments. 
this was all new and un, uninvestigated in earlier spills. Uh, they weren't the, quite the same as the un, unregulated release of, of, of an oil well that breaks like the Deepwater Horizon or the Ixtoc. Uh, but it just shows you just how much um, behavior of the oil into the system, into the into the environment, and into the organisms, and how long it took for those organisms to uh, recover. Um, uh, in the Deepwater Horizon, as well as in the Ixtoc, uh, some of the the bottom environments, the sedimentary environments, the the benthic. Uh, where the benthic organisms live and live off the bottom, live on the bottom, in the bottom, and live off of the bottom, that is their food resources, uh, some of these uh, environments took uh, upwards of 10 years and 15 years to recover. Um, and what's interesting about the recovery is that it did not revert back to the exact same community that it was when the, spill, uh, the day before the spill happened. And so these changes in ecosystems aren't necessarily uh, hysteresis. It doesn't go back to the, to the beginning and start again. This is sort of a new trajectory into the environment. And so these are some really fundamental things that, uh, that we didn't expect. Um, and Steve can go further on them, but uh, as Steve said, there is, we, we could uh, we could spend a couple of hours on all of those features that were unique. So what about regulation? You'd be shocked to learn just how unregulated this industry is. Given the enormous risks we run every time we drill into the ocean or send out a very large crude carrier across the open seas, I got to admit, this was a shock to my system as well. The politics of the oil and gas industry are hard to combat. For example, after the deep water spill, new regulations were put in place in 2016 that required new provisions, such as third-party reviews of blowout protectors and bi-weekly independent safety inspections here in the U.S. Sure enough, though, Donald Trump and his administration revoked these in 2018, creating more freedom for big oil to drill unfettered. As Dr. Murawski explains, the oil industry has proven so difficult to regulate on environmental grounds. Well, you know, one of the ironies, of course, and, and you drew, drew this in your question, is, is that following the uh, 1979 Exxon spill, the 1980, you know, oil, oil OPA 90, uh, Oil Protection Act of 1990 was put in place. There was absolutely no legislative fix to um, respond to Deepwater Horizon. And the interesting thing is, Open 90 was way before there was any deep water industry. There was no, no such thing as ultra deep drilling, right? So you would think that they would modernize that law, you know, to do things like, you know, um, you know, have more accountability on these these things. Um, the the problem, of course, is it's as I said, it's a vastly underregulated industry in terms of the kinds of things that they get away with. Um, you know, there are other things that go on, like for example, you never hear about produced waters. Um, I don't know if you've seen um, that uh, that t that uh, movie called Dark Waters. Um, you know there are um, when when the oil comes up from from any of these formations, it comes up with oil, gas, and water. And the water is ancient water; it's trapped in the in the rock formations. And it comes up, uh, and so actually more water comes up than oil. And 
in the old days, what happened was in shallow water wells, they could separate the water from the oil using a, um, a hydrocyclone or a centrifuge, right? And then they were required to pump the water back down into the formation, right? So that, you know, you didn't create a pollutant effect. In deep water, it's impossible to separate that. You can separate the oil from the water, but you can't re-inject it a mile deep. I mean, you, you, you couldn't generate enough energy to number one, send it down to a mile deep and then send it down even deeper into the rock formation. So um, the oil companies are allowed to just dump the uh, produced water right at sea. And that produced water is heavily polluted with all kinds of things, including um, natural radioactivity, right? And so um, all of these things are converging in this, in you know, the, these, these industries that are totally unregulated um, you know, they're uh, immune from normal EPA regulations. Um, they're not required to do um, monitoring of their wastewater streams. Um, you know, think about it. Every wastewater treatment plant in the United States that um, uses a public waterway for discharge is required to monitor the quality of the water in the receiving water body at their expense, right, under EPA supervision. I thought Dr. Morawski summed up this so well in our chat when he pointed out how progressive the industry is on new developments for finding and securing oil, but how far behind it is in the holistic knowledge of that very work. And so I would say that the biggest thing we found is that the science has not kept up with the engineering and that um, we are constantly at the frontiers of oil development but we're not at the frontiers of knowledge, you know? And so um, I fully expect we're going to have a different scenario the next time. It could be two miles deep. It could be in a totally different system. And so, so what is it we learn from deep water? And is that the playbook for the next one? And the next one will never be like the last one. And, you know, one of the, one of the subtitles of one of our books is, you know, fighting the next war. Um, and there's this, this notion in, in, uh, in, military circles that, uh, you know, generals are always uh, refighting the last war instead of anticipating the next one. And, you know, I, that's my great fear is that uh, we've spent a lot of time and effort trying to, you know, diagnose the entrails of Deepwater Horizon, but that's not going to be the next scenario. It's going to be in a different place. It's going to be in a different oil. It's going to be, you know, in, in different environmental um, circumstances. And so we're just going to have to be a lot more uh, a lot more facile than we are in terms of, of responding to those spills. And I don't think we've learned that lesson. Coming back to Mauritius, there are two big concerns facing the island's inhabitants. One, loss of tourism that fuels their economy, which has already been hampered by the coronavirus globally. And two, the impact on local fishing, their primary source of protein and food supply. Well, I'm worried about two things. Number one, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's a, uh, a former colony. It's heavily dependent on tourist income. Um, you know, um, even, you know, before the, um, the COVID thing, you know, it, you know t- tourist, tourism has been quite a challenge and supporting tourist economies like Madagascar and, and, and Mauritius and other places is going to be a more of a challenge. We found that in our neck of the woods in, in, uh, on the west coast of Florida, that even the, the threat of an oil spill, not even the fact of it, 
uh, created a huge tourist problem that people just didn't want to go to places where oil, the beaches are oiled. So I think they're going to have long-term um, issues with, um, even if, you know, you know, the, the visible oil is cleaned up, you know, they're, you're going to they're have a long-term um, issue in terms of reattracting uh, ecotourism, for example, in that area, which is so beautiful. And so that'll be a problem. And so the other, the other thing is, um, what about the, the food supply? Um, and so, you know, be, you know, as an island nation, um, you know, they're heavily dependent on, on marine foods. And so, you know, how is that going to impact, you know, their, their ability to supplement, you know, what, what they can import, you know, and grow on the island in terms of agriculture products. And so that's going to be an issue as well. And we have reason to be concerned. As Dr. Hollander points out, given the lasting impact the Ixtox bill had in Campeche. James, I can also add uh, this. Uh, there was uh, one of the people that came uh, on our trip to, uh, to the uh, Bay of Campeche uh, was a fellow who made a film focused principally on the impacts to the local communities and sort of merging the science with what was going on in the local communities over the years uh, during the spill and then subsequent to the spill. And as Steve said, the, the subsistence fishing community all but died off. Uh, I don't mean died off, but they all but left the region because of that real problem. As for the wildlife in this area, they face grave uncertainty as well. And while Mauritius might seem like a small island, its role as a biodiversity hotspot is critical for the larger marine ecosystem that depends on it. I, you know, I wanted I wanted to emphasize this point about um, about the um, the unique biota in Mauritius, and, and certainly it has a, a number of endemic birds that are not found anywhere. It has uh, a number of extinct birds, you know, in terms of you know some parrots and starlings and 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 owls and other things. Um, uh, there are a few ma- uh, mammals that are um, try primarily flying foxes and bats. Um, but there are also a, a variety of marine fishes that are found nowhere else in the world, you know, and they're, they're um, both sh- uh, shallow water species and deep water species that are found there. And so, so all of that is, is uh, potentially at risk, you know, when, uh, in something like this. And, you know, believe it or not, you know, even land-based insects and, and, you know, there are a number of uh, endemic butterflies, for example, and, and, uh, in Mauritius, and uh, we know that um, the oil, um, you know, as it uh, volatilizes, you know, um, it will basically, you know, bring toxic levels ashore in the air, and so that's a problem uh, for the the terrestrial wildlife as well. Um, so, so this is, you know, I mean, as as David said, this is a heavy, heavy marine fuel. I think um, I saw estimates are like four thousand tons. Remember, this is a cargo ship, and it wasn't an oil ship, you know, and uh, the the incident itself is really interesting. In fact, it's the smaller organisms we should be most concerned about. They serve as the base of the entire food system, and losing them will have ripple effects on everything up that chain. Yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, we all are, are attracted to the, um, you know, the very conspicuous wildlife, birds, mammals, and, and other things that, and when they're oiled, you know, you know, they... They, they certainly, um, you know, are, you know, what, what are the most visible components 
um, what's not visible is the base of the food chain, which tends to be, you know, what's going to actually ultimately support all these things. And, you know, once the, once the oil is in the sediments, um, you know, it will keep giving until it's sequestered, you know, and so, uh, and by that, I mean, in many marine environments, um, like, for example, at Ixtoc and here at, at Deepwater, um, what happens is the, the oil will get into an anoxic layer, you know, where, there, where there's no oxygen to help weather the oil, and it'll just sit there, you know, and it takes a while um, for the oil to be sufficiently buried. So um, the small, you know, things like crabs and, and, and mollusks and everything, so they won't constantly dig it back up and, and resuspend it, right? And that'll take years. And so I anticipate that, you know, um, we'll be able to trace the, the carbon signal from oil in Mauritius for decades. Um, uh, we, there are very sophisticated methods that we can use with isotopes of various elements like carbon. And, and oil is what we call dead uh, carbon. And, uh, and it has a, a very unique uh, isotopic signature. And we can follow that dead carbon through the food chain as it actually, you know, um, uh, mixes with, you know, normal, normal recycled carbon, you know, as one fish eats another or whatever. And so uh, that becomes a tracer in the environment to see how long it will last. So, um, you know, there, it's the, it's the, it's the non-conspicuous uh, wildlife that uh, is probably the most problematic you know, and, and vulnerable to these kinds of spills. And, uh, and, you know, the, it's, it's what you don't see that may be more problematic in the long term for the people of Mauritius. At a moment in time when the world is fighting a global pandemic, most likely ignited by wildlife trafficking, and social justice inequalities have hit a boiling point demanding reformation and change, this oil spill in Mauritius is a stark reminder of just how intertwined environmentalism and human rights truly are. A wealthy oil company from an economically powerful nation has once again caused irrevocable damage to a smaller nation and the wildlife they live in harmony with. I'll say one thing about social justice and environmental uh, injustice, I guess. Um, before I, I was in Florida, I was in Chicago, and of course the brownfields on the south side of Chicago are a classic case of of the of the poorest districts being held in these brown or being put in brownfields, uh, which are these chemical essentially dump sites, uh, and so this this is this is a, you know been going on for for decades and decades, uh, if not longer now, um, and uh, it you know I'm not quite sure what the solution to this is. Uh, but I think this is going to be one of the one of the uh, one of the issues of, of of our times over the next decades for sure. And then you throw climate change on top of it, then uh, which may be one of the great equalizers, right? Uh, in one way or another, because a lot of these uh, just take uh, we'll we'll take it to back home to our our place in Florida. Uh, People that are living on the coasts are not necessarily uh, the most uh, the, the poorest of them all, and they are going to be ones also at risk with climate variations and sea level rise and storm surge issues associated with sea level rise in the coastal environment. Um, not that there you want equivalent justice like that, but uh, there uh, in some instances uh, it, it focuses directly on the poor. 
uh, obviously the, uh, the the COVID-19 is, is one thing for sure. And, uh, and a lot of environmental disasters happen a lot of times in areas that are extremely poor. And if you take these two environmental disasters that happen uh, in third world countries, uh, the the exploitation of the poor is even worse. I, I think in uh, in the Dow, I think it was Dow Chemical was in India. Bhopal um, is another good example of this. So uh, there's lots of material to write on with social and climate injustice. Here at Animalia, we send our best wishes to everyone in Mauritius and all of the human and non-human life hurting right now from this bill. And thank you to all those out there fighting to clean it up and limit the damages. If you'd like to help, you can make a donation to the Mauritius Wildlife Foundation, which is linked in our description. We know times are tough and funds are tight for so many, but every penny counts. If you can't donate, please share what's going on. And perhaps most of all, remember you have power in your voice and your vote. Make sure rigorous environmental standards for the energy industry are a priority for anyone you elect to be in office, nationally or locally. Thank you for listening.